This is episode 177 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, In Memory of Pete Hamill. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I am so delighted to welcome a new guest to the show today. Ryan O'Neill is with us. And he also is a graduate of Syracuse University. It seems as though we're really strengthening the bonds between the journalism school at Syracuse University and this podcast. So welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you, Jennifer. Pleasure to be here. All right. I'll uh, introduce you. Brian retired in July after 42 years in newspapers, the last 37 as a columnist, and the last 32 as a columnist for the Pittsburgh Press and Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. And I should say, we're here today to talk about another famous columnist, Pete Hamill. Uh, So Brian is a Long Island native and a graduate of Syracuse University. He first learned his craft reading what he calls the great one-two punch in the history of American columnists, Pete Hamill and Jimmy Breslin, in the New York Daily News of the 1970s. Brian has been a winner of numerous regional and statewide awards for his columns and is the author of the acclaimed The Paris of Appalachia, Pittsburgh in the 21st Century, uh, which I did happen to take a quick look at, which, yeah, just looks great. A story of that singular city from the ground up, not the top down, the way Pete Hamill would have wanted it. All right, Brian. So thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us about Pete. I'm really interested to honor his legacy. Well, he's one of my writing heroes, so it's it's a pleasure to be here. Here's some background about Pete Hamill. He was Irish Catholic from Brooklyn. His parents were working class people. His father worked in a factory, and his first job was delivering newspapers. He first dabbled in visual arts, like comic books and then painting, uh, before he decided to become a writer. In 1960, he went to work as a reporter for the New York Post, then moved to Europe to write for Saturday Evening Post, then back to New York City and wrote for the Post starting in 1965. And he worked for decades at the Post, the New York Daily News, Village Voice, and New York Newsday. He also wrote for New York Magazine, The New Yorker, Esquire, Playboy, Rolling Stone, on and on. He wrote a lot about music and won a 1975 Grammy for the liner notes for Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks. He also wrote about boxing, baseball, and art, especially photography. He edited a two-volume edition of A.J. Liebling's writings, and he published fiction, some semi-autobiographical stuff, including a book called A Drinking Life, and lots of short stories. He was a friend of... Robert F. Kennedy, and worked for his campaign and was one of the four men who disarmed Sirhan Sirhan of his gun right after the assassination. 
He was awarded the Ernie Powell Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Society of Newspaper Columnists in 2005. And he was honored in a 2019 HBO documentary called Breslin and Hamill, Deadline Artists. And that was about their friendship and competition between New York City's most read columnists of their era. He lived all over the world, but always returned to New York City. And he died August 5th at the age of 85 from heart and kidney failure. I read an obituary in Pocket Worthy uh, in which the writer said, Hamill's punch prose, every man's sensibilities, and unabashed love of the news business. And separately, um, I noticed that Pete described it as a ringside seat at the greatest show on earth. <laughs> and then uh, back to Pocket Worthy. And the city he covered inspired a generation of journalists. So tell me, how do you think his style affected journalism over the past, I mean, 60, 80 years? Well, I can tell you how it affected me. I I grew up on Long Island. Like Pete, I, my first job was delivering uh, newspapers, uh, Newsday in my case, which was one of the few New York papers that I don't think Pete ever worked for, although Jimmy <laughs> Breslin did later. Mm. When I got older, in my 20s, I was reading, when I was still in college, so my late teens and 20s, I was reading Pete Hamill and Jimmy Breslin in the New York Daily News. And it was remarkable what these two men did every day. They would not sit at their desks and call people on the phone. They would go hit the streets, talk to everybody, cops, prostitutes, construction workers, hippies, homeless people. They were all in there. Hmm. And through these short stories, they told the story of New York City at that particular time what it was like to live there. And it was beautiful. I couldn't get enough of it. Mm. And it was that, you know, it was the same era where people were inspired, people of my generation in journalism were inspired by Woodward and Bernstein, who had just, you know, taken down uh, Richard Nixon uh, with their stories about Watergate and the Washington Post. But for me, uh, I was interested in politics, but what they were doing was was more real to me. And that's always what I wanted to do and was able to do in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I think Pete has this comment about there being many New York cities. Right. And so it makes me think of that. Yeah, when you say he went out and actually talked to people, you know, that he really explored all the different, I mean, New York City is so complicated. Right. And you talk about his love for the city. I mean, that came through. And in the 1970s, New York was hard to love sometimes. Mm. But I remember a, a particular essay he wrote in the 70s for Esquire about the three blows uh, that hit Brooklyn in a very short period of time after World War II uh, in the span of maybe 10 years. The Brooklyn Navy Yard closed. The Brooklyn Eagle shut down and the Dodgers left Brooklyn for Los Angeles. Right. And he wrote this great essay about how Brooklyn has never been the same. And I was I was really struck by that because in the 1970s, Brooklyn was really rough. And I I remembered 
you know, a little later seeing Sophie's Choice and being jealous uh, that these people were able to live in Brooklyn at such a time where it was such a great place to live. Now, of course, it would, it's the it's one of the most expensive places on earth. Yeah, it's a, it's a different world now. Right, it has a whole different set of problems. But anyway, I was that essay really hit home for me. And I remember in coming to Pittsburgh in the late 80s after the implosion of the steel industry, and the Pittsburgh Pirates were maybe not going to stay in Pittsburgh. And, you know, newspapers were in a bit of trouble. And it, it really harkened back to what I had read about Brooklyn. And I was really where I, I wrote a column about it for Pit, Pittsburgh that we, you know, we need to keep the Pirates in town. Mm. You know, we, we need to come back. We can't. We can't give up on this great place. And um, Pete inspired that column. It's kind of interesting to think about the parallels between Brooklyn and Pittsburgh. Actually, now that we're talking, I have a dear friend who lives in Pittsburgh. And there were some videos recently that that were just amusing videos, but that that were filmed in Pittsburgh. And she's been telling me for years about what a wonderful city Pittsburgh has become. And I think for, and, and that was obvious in these videos and, you know, just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And yet I think for many of us of a certain age, you know, we think of a different Pittsburgh. Yeah. Funny. Yeah. I have a friend who moved here from the East coast and he, he refers to Pittsburgh as a standalone Brooklyn. Mm. It's like, Brooklyn dropped down in the middle of the Apple, you know, and in, in the Appalachian foothills with these three rivers and, um, you know, all these hills. But um, it's it's it is a great place to live. All right. So back to Pete Hamill's style. And another we did a podcast not that long ago about Studs Terkel. And of course, he was famous also for kinding, finding, you know, the everyday man and, and learning his or her story as Pete obviously did. But when you think about Pete and his writing style, which I've really been exploring in the last few days, tell me what you think makes it timeless and what you think makes it dated. That's a great question. He he obviously writes in a really straightforward manner. I mean, although obviously he has a way with words, there's not a lot of excess Mm. in his writing you know he can get to the point quickly you know where he stands you know what he believes to me that is timeless and and he could write that way today he could do the same thing in fact i wish he was around to to go to say portland or Mm -hmm. you know kenosha and uh, write columns from the streets there I did that a little bit here in Pittsburgh just before I retired. We had some some uh, protests that that got a little ugly. But um, the difference, I think, now is everything he wrote would be parsed by people looking for something to be offended by, because uh, a lot for a lot of Americans, if they're not offended by something before breakfast their uh their day is ruined you know they're 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 looking for something that really they can disagree with and point out that this is wrong 
that you said in, you know, paragraph four, you used this term, which I think is, you know, disparaging to what, you know, whatever, you know, they mm-hmm. missed the point. They can't see the forest for the trees. You know, they're, they're mm-hmm. looking for something to uh, dispute uh, instead of confronting the idea of what he's talking about. And uh, that really bothers me. That was <laughs> endlessly annoying. Uh, you know, but, you know, that's part of journalism now. You write a column and and then the comments begin and they go off in a direction that has nothing to do with what you wrote. Right. But, but you know, it's the same people screaming at each other from one side or the other. Yeah. So a few people come to mind when you say that. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, I think that's a really interesting observation because that is something I noticed about Pete's writing is it's fairly, what is the word for it? It's fairly free-spirited. And so, yeah, I mean, he lays out some sentences that that I was kind of taken aback about. I mean, that one, we'll talk about this uh, article about the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, but he uses the N-word twice in that article. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you were to take what he's saying there out of context, it would be extremely offensive. Yeah. So, so now I feel like we're more cautious, right? Like we self-censor more. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's yeah. He had a real no holds barred Mm -hmm. way of writing. The, The difference with Pete Hamill though, is he evolved, you know, he, he didn't stay stuck in a particular period of time. And some of the stuff he wrote in the 60s and 70s, he would probably say, yeah, if I was writing today, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have put it that way. Or I don't even really believe, I mean, I'm speaking for him, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, take this with many grains of salt. But I, I did believe in reading him over the years that he, unlike a lot of people who haven't had a new idea since they graduated from high school, he was he was ready to accept that maybe he was mm-hmm. wrong about X in 1965 or 1975 or 1985 and uh, would adjust his thinking. Yeah, his writing seems so fresh. So I yeah. can yeah, I can imagine that 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 that's true. It's really a reflection of where he's at mentally. And so yeah, as as he has grown and evolved, I'm sure that's reflected in his writing. That's that's a really great point about what makes him what made him endure, right? Why we kept up with him. Right. You know, I I met Pete Hamill once. I met my heroes Jimmy Breslin and Pete Hamill each one time. They came to Western Pennsylvania for different reasons. And I was able to interview them. And Pete Hamill had just written, um, it came out early in the 21st century, a novel called Forever, which is a fantasy about a a guy, an immigrant from Ireland who moves to Manhattan uh, pre-revolutionary war. And in this novel, he never ages, but, but the, but the, the curse is he's he can never leave Manhattan. So he it, it, the novel is called Forever, and uh, so it traces the history of Man- Manhattan through this one guy from you know before the revolution to the modern day. And he told me that he turned it in 
to the publisher on, I think he said, September 10th, 2011. Oh. And the next day, of course, the attack on America came. Right. And he was writing, you know, journalism, covering that story. And about a week later, he realized, I got to get my book back. I, yeah, I, right. I, I can't write a story of Manhattan uh, without this. Yeah. So he rewrote his novel, for, you know, to change the ending uh, to take this in. And that's a reflection of, of the seriousness of his work mm-hmm. that he wanted to be on top of things all the time. I think it's tempting when someone of his stature passes away to think about his legacy as being like, that's it, you know, uh, cast in stone. But I was wondering if you think there are writers around that kind of carry on his tradition. You know, um, there have been. Uh, Steve Lopez, who wrote for the Philadelphia Inquirer and then later the Los Angeles Times, I don't know if he's still writing. He was he was very much of this stripe to go out in the streets and talk to people. Uh, and it was a, one, a wonderful columnist. He's about my age. He may have retired. I don't know. I don't get the Los Angeles Times. Hmm. But, you know, there aren't that many columnists anymore who do what Pete and Jimmy Breslin did. I mean, there's a lot of pontificators. Uh, there's a lot of thumb suckers who uh, <laughs> sit at their desk and tell you about the world. But there's too few columnists who go out into the streets and talk to people. Maureen Dowd, I, I like. She does some of that. And I get her. I totally get her. I'm Irish Catholic. And uh, I like her writing. She's funny. She's a little too much into pop culture for my taste. Mm. But she does talk to people. Uh, Peggy Noonan talks to people. Mm-hmm. But even then, there's a little too much. I mean, I like George Will as a writer, but he's not in the streets talking to people. No. And, uh, you know, there's just too, there aren't enough of those people, those kind of columnists anymore. Well, let those words be heard by wannabe journalists out there because, you know, it's funny that that's the case now because with technology, my gosh, you know, you're so mobile. I mean, you can go yeah. out and do so much now with not not a great deal of upfront cost. Yeah. I mean, I hope what happens is people listen to this podcast and, and tell me I'm wrong, that there's this guy and that woman and, you know, somebody's over here that I just don't know about. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the, the, the famous people are the, are the people who sit behind a microphone and tell us what they think. Uh, right. It's, yeah, that's a really interesting observation. All right. So there, we're throwing down the challenge to the listeners. Tell us, tell us about who we don't know. So I wanted to ask you about being a columnist. Of course, newspapers have changed a lot. And so we don't have kind of the columnist the way we used to. But tell me what that work was like, what that kind of pressure is like to have to produce a column on, you know, a few a week or once a week or what's yeah. that work like? There's a, I, I didn't come up with this analogy, but somebody once said it's, it's like being married to a nymphomaniac. Every time you finish, you got to start again. But, um, <laughs> oh, dear. But, what but, an image. <laughs> yeah. But, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a great 
challenge. Like what I've always told people is it's it's not hard to write three columns a week. It is hard to write three good columns a week. Mm-hmm. So that was always the challenge. And, you know, you're never ahead. You can't bank a lot of columns because then they're not newsy anymore. You know, mm-hmm. you're not on top of the news if you've written one a month in advance. So there's no way to get ahead because there's always another deadline. But God provides and the reader provides, uh, you know, you do this after a while and people get what you're trying to do and readers call you or email you and say, I know a guy or how come you haven't done anything on this, you know, flooding in this neighborhood and the Mm -hmm. city's not doing anything. And so you go there and you talk to the people there and you and you get great stories that way. I, I, I remember one just comes to mind right now. This guy told me that. Uh, there were these two wild turkeys that attacked cyclists on a trail, on a bike trail in Oakland, oh uh, which goodness. is the neighborhood where the University of Pittsburgh is, Pittsburgh neighborhood called Oakland. And so I said, get out of here. But I <laughs> I, uh, I rode my bicycle with this guy. He was an attorney who worked downtown who biked to work. And we go to this place, this little uh, neighborhood called Panther Hollow. If anybody's read uh, Michael Shabin's uh, novel, uh, The Mysteries of Pittsburgh, this is the lost neighborhood, Panther Hollow. It's below the Panther Hollow Bridge, and there's just a handful of houses in this valley. And sure enough, these two turkeys were waiting for us, and they only attacked cyclists, which the people in the neighborhood kind of liked. They were (laughs) get him. (laughs) They would sit on their porch and watch the show. And so... um, they were waiting for us like, you know, a couple of teenage thugs. Jeez. And, you know, we had to get off our bikes and use the bikes as like shields. And oh, my gosh. It was very strange. And so I wrote a column about it. And I remember biking home and stopping in a bar and getting a shot of wild turkey just because. Oh, yeah, it seemed, right. <laughs> it like the right thing to do. All right. But um, it's been, you know. 15 years since I wrote that column, but I, what happened was that the uh, game commission came in and, and grabbed these two turkeys. There was just these two particular turkeys that were the problem. Right. And they traded them to like North Dakota or Montana for two other birds. <laughs> you know, it was very, oh, very funny. strange, but yeah. So that's the kind of column you get. Mm-hmm. You can only get if readers get you. Mm-hmm. If readers realize what you're trying to do, They'll say, as they said in New York, that sounds like a Pete Hamill column or a Jimmy Breslin column. And a few people in Pittsburgh, that sounds like a Brian O'Neill column. I'm going to give him a call. Mm-hmm. And so I did. You know, I got a lot of columns that way. I got one from a, a wonderful uh, one of a, a woman who is now in a nursing home who got a love letter from her husband every day, every mm-hmm. day. Wow. And uh, all her married life. And uh, her, her husband had died, but I with her son and her, they shared these beautiful notes that he'd, he'd left for his, his wife every day. It was, I mean, I, I get a tear in my eye just thinking about it now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the power of these columns. Yeah. And it, and it, 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 it can only come from the reality of life. I, I met I was able to meet, I, I spent one semester school in London in 1978, and I met the novelist and physicist C.P. Snow. Oh, yeah. I asked him, I was in a pub, and I asked him, I had read one of his novels, and I said, you know, are these based on real people? 
And he said, oh yeah, all, all, all my characters are based on real people. God, God creates the best characters. And I, that always stayed with me, you know, yeah. that, that everybody has a story and um, you just got to find them. What a great line. Yeah. 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 I've also been studying um, Justin Towns Earl, the musician, young musician who just passed away. Yeah. And he, was, he was talking about the characters in his songs in an interview. And he said, oh, yeah, these are real people. He said, I have their phone numbers. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I like that, too. Yeah. Well, one of the strangest stories about Pete Hamill is that he was really right there present at the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. And he wrote about it. And I'll read some from that article. These are some excerpts from Hamill's 1978 article, Two Minutes to Midnight, The Very Last Hurrah. And these describe Bobby Kennedy's final moments in the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles in June of 1968, right after he had won the California Democratic primary against Eugene McCarthy. Hamill was there, along with, of all people, George Plimpton. He wrote, we found ourselves in a long, grubby area called the pantry. It was the sort of place where Puerto Ricans, blacks, and Mexican-Americans usually work to fill white stomachs. There were high bluish fluorescent lights strung across the ceiling, a floor of raw sandy colored concrete, pale dirty walls. On the right were a rusty ice machine and shelves filled with dirty glasses. On the left an archway led into the main kitchen and under the arch a crowd of Mexican American cooks and busboys waited to see Kennedy. Then a pimply messenger arrived from the secret filthy heart of America. He was curly-haired, wearing a pale blue sweatshirt and blue jeans, and he was planted with his right foot forward and his right arm straight out, and he was firing a gun. We knew then that America had struck again. In this slimy little indoor alley in the back of a gaudy ballroom, in this shabby reality behind the glittering facade, Americans were doing what they do best, killing and dying and cursing, because hope doesn't last very long among us. When we got through the police barricades, we drove without talk to the hospital of the Good Samaritan, listening to the news on the radio. The unspoken thought was loudest. The country's gone. Medgar Evers was dead. Malcolm X was dead. Martin Luther King was dead. Jack Kennedy was dead. And now Robert Kennedy was dying. The hell with it. The hatred was now general, I hated that pimpled kid in that squalid cellar enough to want to kill him. He hated Kennedy the same way. That kid and the bitter Kennedy haters were the same. All those people in New York who hated Kennedy's guts, who said ich when his name was mentioned, the ones who creamed over Murray Kempton's vicious diatribes these last few months, they were the same. When Evers died, when King died, when Jack Kennedy died— all the bland pundits said that some good would come of it in some way, that the nation would go through a catharsis, that somehow the bitterness, the hatred, the bigotry, the evil of racism, the glib violence would be erased. That was bullshit. We will have our four-day televised orgy of remorse about Robert Kennedy, and then it will be business as usual. 
You could feel that as we drove through the empty L.A. streets, listening to the sirens screaming in the night. Nothing would change. Kennedy's death would mean nothing. It was just another digit in the great historical pageant that includes the slaughter of Indians, the plundering of Mexico, the enslavement of black people, the humiliation of Puerto Ricans. While the cops made chalk marks on the floor of the pantry, the brave members of the National Rifle Association were already explaining that people commit crimes, guns don't. I mean, that article is just astonishing in in many ways, not just because of his writing, but also because of the event. But his writing is really, you know, electrifying. Right. And and the the immediacy that you get from how he describes that scene. And also then just how incredibly bitter he is about that event. Yes. So so I, I was kind of surprised at how modern that writing felt. I think I've probably forgotten how some of the writing from the 60s feels. Do you think that was unusual for that time? And and do you think that that kind of writing would fly today? I think it would fly today. And, I, and you know, as I said earlier, a lot of people would criticize this or that, but it's it's timeless as as you suggested. It's it's right now. But, you know, you read King Lear and it's it's that's timeless, too. I mean, you know, people are haven't changed that much. You know, if you're there at an important event and talk to real people, you're going to get stuff that nobody else is getting. You know, his his counterpart, Jimmy Breslin, is famous for after the Kennedy assassination. He wrote a column about the gravedigger. For the president, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm choked up thinking about that. Mm -hmm. You know, these are the people we ought to be writing about. Yeah, really. Yeah. Another one that I ran across when I was studying him was an article he wrote about Trump. And it's from 1989. It's called Tea Without Sympathy. (laughs) Um, Esquire. Yep. And it starts out all across the odious 80s. The name and character of T insisted upon entrance to my mind and imagination. So many other phenomena arrived and departed. The Contras, deconstruction theory, Al Haig, the Laffer curve, all vanished down a black hole. But T didn't go away. T endured. T overpowered all efforts of the will to resist him. (laughs) He was like some crazy spirochete, attacking the mind with such remorseless insistence that I cannot even now type his name. And that's the end of the first paragraph. And so, you know, again, it's another article that just completely blows your mind. You know, one of the things about Hamill is that he's very sensitive to the everyday man, right? Right. And, and and so I was thinking when I was reading this article, like how much did Pete channel our thinking and how much do you think he led our thinking? Well, again, you know, I can think only, I can speak only for myself. I, I he did, he certainly influenced me. Uh, I remember a column he wrote. It was a guy, I think the publisher was named, Michael O'Neill, you know, same surname oh, as mine. Funny. Mm-hmm. But the the Daily News fired Pete Hamill at one point, and this guy Michael O'Neill was the publisher, 
And so, so, and I might get some of this wrong. It's been, you know, 40 years since I've read this, but Pete Hamill was writing for, you know, another publication, probably the Village Voice or somebody was writing about him. Anyway, Pete Hamill's big objection to Michael O'Neill, he called him a castle Irishman, which was a, a derogatory term from the old country, you know, the people who basically collaborated with the English, you know, so, gotcha. so he called uh, this, this guy O'Neill, a castle Irishman. And his big complaint was that he would drink in this exclusive club in New York. And uh, a friend of mine, I was living in Danville, Virginia at the time, he was from Durham and he didn't have any of these ethnic you know, sensibilities. He said, only an Irish guy would complain, would his mm. complaint would be about where the man drinks, <laughs> you know, but, uh-huh. but I totally understood what Hamill was talking about that. Like, if you want to put out the New York daily news, you should not be drinking in the century club or whatever it was. You should be down there with the people in Harlem, in Brooklyn, in Greenwich Village, you know, Bensonhurst, Hell's Kitchen. That's that's where your readers are, or, the, or if you want to keep your readers or get new readers, that's what you should be writing about. Yeah. So maybe, right. I, I get it, right? I get the criticism of the comment, but I also understand what's behind the comment. You know, Trump, I... I never liked Trump, uh, even before he decided he was a Republican. I mean, I never, and he, you know, had the hostile takeover of the Republican Party. But you know, to me, he was just not a, not a nice person. You know, he was in the tabloids and and you know, a serial adulterer and a, you know, just a creep. Uh, so it's you know, it wasn't hard for Pete Hamill in 1989 to 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 understand the kind of person. Trump is because he was always that person. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it just when you read that article today, there are parts of it, yeah, that kind of make the hair go up on the back of your neck because of what happened later. Yeah, well, he's he would be if Trump was Irish, he would be a castle Irishman. So, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, drinking in some exclusive place, <laughs> right. and he doesn't <laughs> even drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And there's another one that I ran across from Pete uh, in 1990, in August of 1990. He had this line in Esquire, which again, just seems so timely to me. 1990 doesn't seem that long ago, but 30 years ago, he wrote in Esquire, he was talking about heterophobia, which I presume at that time wasn't really even a word. It's not even really a word now, but the the dictionary has pulled this quote from him. As in so many areas of our society, divisions are drawn in black and white. There are no shades of gray. Homophobia is countered by heterophobia. The empty answer to gay bashing is a vow to bash back. There are sadder developments in American life, I suppose, but for the moment, I can't think of one. It just seems so incredibly relevant right now with all the thing about identity politics. And you know, so I, I guess what I'm thinking about asking you is how much you think we should read of someone of Hamill's generation, or do you think his time has passed? Uh, 
I hope his time hasn't passed. I okay. um, I think it's fascinating. I mean, it's it's you know the, 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 as people say about newspapers, the rough draft of history. So if you're interested in the history of this country, uh, as I hope all your listeners are, uh, he he would be valuable to read because he was talking about things as they were happening. As you read that about the counterpart to uh, homophobia being heterophobia, I see that now where it's it's anti-racists find it perfectly okay to stereotype uh, white women and call them all Karens knowing nothing about a particular person, uh, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, it's easy and it's uh, tempting to put people into boxes all the time and say, oh, she's a Karen, because then you can put her in a box and you don't have to think about her anymore, mm-hmm. um, which there's a lot of that going on now in the United States. And it's, it's not good. Yeah. And that, place in particular. He just seems very, very relevant. I love that, the rough draft of history. And maybe that's why, as I say, as I've been reading him these past few days, it it does seem not quite clairvoyant, but wow, prescient, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's still valuable to read. He's, uh, in fact, when I I get off, I might might go online or or see what, I have some books of columns here. I might, I might read him again. Well, he's got a lot to read. That's for sure. My goodness. He wrote a lot of books, short stories, fiction, a drinking yeah. life. My gosh, he was prolific. Yeah. Yeah. He loved to write and he was, he was good at it. Of all his work for you. Well, let me ask this in two uh, phases. What do you think is the most significant in terms of journalism? And then what's the most significant for you personally? I would say they're both the same. You know, it was it was just the way he approached his job and um, all the things we've been talking about. There's no particular column that, you know, some of his columns stand out and are more memorable than others. But it's it was the overall approach that, you know, everyday people have something to say mm-hmm. and we better listen and hear them out. And uh, you may be surprised by what they're thinking. And uh, it's hard to do. And, and, you know, when you pick one person, you know, they don't speak for the, you know, and we get this all the time too. Somebody goes to West Virginia and talks to a handful of people in a diner and then they're supposed to represent the entire state. So it's it's hard to 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 find that person, but some of these people are representative of of other folks, a larger group, and um, it's important to listen to them and talk to them, and uh, make sure everybody is represented in your newspaper. You and I were talking before the show about that you need a Japanese word for someone who acquires more books than they can read. Is that, is that right, what you right. said? You know, I wish that I had a word for the complexity of a single individual. I'm really yeah. fas- fascinated by that personally. And it shows a lot in my podcast, of course, because I tend to be interested in individuals and how 
they think about the world and that it's so much more complicated than they're often represented right in on television or you know in ways in which we access people and if you actually have a long conversation with a single person you realize they don't even understand themselves. I mean, they're, right. they're, they're, they're right. that complicated. <laughs> yeah. So I wish I, I need a Japanese word for that, right? This whole thing that envelops an entire individual. And, and maybe that is why someone like Pete Hamill, we get a taste of that. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he was fascinated by people and mm-hmm. he, he liked, you know, when I met him, he was a nice guy on top of everything else. He was, mm. you know, down to earth, personable, telling funny stories. He and Jimmy Breslin, I guess, shared a secretary who was like the most overworked woman <laughs> in New York City. Um, um, you know, just a good guy and um, loved people and loved being among people, hated hypocrisy, just a wonderful man. And, uh, uh, newspaper American newspapers were very lucky to have him as long as we had him. Do you use him at all when you're helping younger writers learn how to write? No, I mean no, I don't quote, you know, I I mean I'm um influenced by him and Jimmy Breslin and others uh who followed at the, the New York Daily News had uh had some great col- columnists over the years following um those two, I mean, uh, Mike McElary, I may be mispronouncing his name, but he also went to Syracuse. No, oh, he was there when I was there. Uh, but he wrote, he wrote great, he wrote great newspaper columns. But you know, what I would always, uh, what I tell writers is, uh, you know, talk to people, make that extra phone call and, uh, and keep it short. I always tell people, I always tell writers, cut the good stuff and leave the very good stuff. Oh, you know, people, people don't have a lot of time or or attractive things about a newspaper column is when you pick it up, you know, how much time you have to spend with it, Mm. (laughs) you know, like five minutes. And uh, sometimes it takes all day to make it look like you wrote it in five minutes, but you're supposed to make it look like it was easy to write, uh, even when it wasn't so that it will be easy to read. And hopefully you've given that person, uh, if you're really doing your job right that day, what they spent on a newspaper, what you did uh, made it worth their money. I think that is one of the really special challenges about being a columnist. And I hadn't thought of it until now is that it's fair. They are fairly short and that's hard. I mean, that's the Mark Twain thing about how long it takes to make something short. (laughs) Right. Yeah. There was a fact, there was a letter to the editor and I, forget who said it, but I have to write a long letter because I don't have time to write a short one. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, keep it, keep it short. And, uh, and you know, what's, what's challenging now for newspaper columnists is there are so many distractions. Mm-hmm. You know, there've always been distractions, you know, when people were reading these columns on subways, there were distractions as they're, you know, on the subway, but now the distractions are if you're reading online, the distractions are built into the machine you're reading it on and something pings and you're gone. It's hard to be a newspaper columnist now. You know, what's funny though, is that they're basically blogs. Yeah. You know, before there were blogs, there were newspaper columns, you know, it's some guy's or some woman's opinion um, after the way 
I did it and Pete Hamill did it. You talk to a bunch of people and then you form an opinion and you tell a story through those people. And, uh, you know, if you do it right, people like it. Yeah, I think that's a that's one of the complaints that I have about a lot of blogs is they are simply too long. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, almost everything is too long. You know, <laughs> it's like really, I mean, like so many things on Netflix, they're just obviously padded, you know, series that should have been, you know, three hours go nine hours, and uh, you know, just, just to keep people. You know, it's about the money, basically. Yeah, that's um, the issue. Yeah, it's my complaint about a lot of books, actually. I need a Japanese word for that. You know, they're, yeah. just, they're just way too many books that I read. It's like, this would have been an excellent long-form article. Excellent. Yeah. It's just not a good book. Yeah. Right. I mean, I've even the great book, like I've read Moby Dick a couple of times, and I've you get out Each your time, red I'm like, you, can, you know, enough. I get it about the whaling. I don't need to know everything. Um, so, and yeah, there's there's books that could be shorter, but they were they were you know Dickens when he was writing, it was getting a penny a word, so he, he wasn't mm-hmm. interested in keeping it shorter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you always have to look at the incentives. That's for sure. Okay, so for a final word about Pete's legacy. What do you think his contribution is to us? Well, you know, so many people listening to this podcast probably have never read Pete Hamill. Mm. You know, he did this stuff for Esquire, but mostly he was regionally important at that region being New York City, a, a pretty a pretty large uh, metropolitan area. But um, his legacy is hopefully I'm not the only one who read him. Uh, and went to work in journalism. Uh, there's probably countless people who are the you know the children of Pete Hamill, like they were the children of Woodward and Bernstein, or even of Lou Grant. I met I met Ed Asner one time and told him that you know his approach to journalism on the Mary Tyler Moore show of all things, and then later Lou Grant, you know, had had showed me that this is important work and you take it seriously. Oh, so. You know, Pete Hamill's legacy, he's part of a tradition of American journalism of getting out there and talking to people and trying to get the story from the ground up rather than from the top down. Well, thank you again so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Brian. And before I let you go, I'm wondering if there's anything that you, any last words you have for the listeners, if there's anything you'd like to refer them to, resources, things that you wish they would read, anything like that. Well, you know, I'd love if they read the Paris of Appalachia, uh, Ah, which uh you can buy online. But um, more broadly, I would hope that they subscribe to their local newspaper. What I tell people, like the New York Times is going to survive, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, they're they're all going to survive. But your local newspaper does the grunt work that so much of what you're hearing from all the other media comes from. All the other media feed off newspapers. Mm-hmm. And I'm a baseball fan, so I, I use the analogy of, of the, your local newspaper is the the starting pitcher who pitches 200 innings. Every team needs a, a, a guy who pitches 200 innings 
to cover a lot of ground, to cover the city council meetings, the school board meetings, all that stuff that's sometimes boring. But if you think your government is bad now, mm-hmm. wait till we stop watching them. Mm-hmm. So for God's sake, for all that is holy, subscribe to your local newspaper. Yeah, that's great. I, I can provide a link uh, to the uh, Paris article. And I should mention to the listeners, we did a whole series of episodes about journalism earlier this year. I think I'm up to 10 or something like that, which is where we started having so many uh, connections with Syracuse University. But just as a reminder, starting, I think, back in March, we started having those series of journalism. I just think it's really important work. And since this is a podcast about work, I wanted to focus on that uh, during that period of time. So yeah, don't forget about those either. And Brian, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Jennifer, it it was my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday, and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.